It's the same thing that happens in sales. If you have a full pipeline, you don't bother pursuing prospects that are transactional, rude, kind of not committed. So the concepts of great selling and great sales management, they can have a lot of similarities, but you need to know how to bridge that gap. And I remember he just looked at me, he said, you're right. So think about it. Do you have a people problem or do you have a recruiting problem? And it's usually a recruiting problem. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Well, that was Colleen Stanley. Colleen's the author of a couple of very interesting books, uh, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Success, and her most recent book, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leaders, which is a book we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to dive into why emotional intelligence has to be part of your sales culture. And Colleen talks about why this culture starts at the very top. Emotionally intelligent sales teams are led by emotionally intelligent sales leaders. That really all starts, as she talks about in her book, with how you hire. And we're going to dig into that. How sales leaders should improve their own EQ or emotional intelligence. Because, you know, whatever level you have now is not a life sentence. And Colleen will share how leaders can develop the self-awareness needed to elevate their emotional intelligence. And then get into why hiring becomes such a critical skill for sales leaders trying to build a sales team with a high emotional intelligence or high EQ. And she also shares steps sales leaders can take to validate and verify that candidates have the emotional tools required to succeed in sales. All this and much, much more. But before we get to Colleen, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thanks. All right, let's jump into it with Colleen. Colleen, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Having a delightful afternoon with you. Oh, yeah. So, um, where have you been sheltering in place? Well, I live in Denver, Colorado, so we live up in the foothills. So, we have been sheltering among the deer and the antelope, as we say. Oh, nice. So, is like COVID resistant to altitude or not resistant to altitude? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we don't uh, we don't know about that, but the uh, the elk and the deer don't seem to be bothered much by it. Put it that way. Uh, okay, so, that's good. Yes, that's good. All right, so we're going to talk about your new book, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leaders: The Secret to Building High Performance Sales Teams. So, um, yeah, what is the secret? Well, you know, if it came down to one thing, wouldn't we all be brilliant? So, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, when I started the book. You uh, teased us with that in the title. I did. I did. And, you know, and really I started the book, there was, you know, four different sections, but I would say the one thing is what the first section of the book talks about, and it's getting your hiring process correctly, right? Because if you've ever led a team, managed a team, I always say the difference between hell and heaven is hiring the right type of people. And obviously, based on the work we do, I focused on how do you identify, recruit, and hire emotionally intelligent salespeople. So, I think that makes life much easier for a sales leader uh, day-to-day in achieving consistent revenues. Yeah, well, we're, I plan on focus most on the hiring part, but you know, I had to, to laugh because you have a a section titled what they don't teach you at sales management school and i thought huh where is that school <laughs> i mean I, I don't know so many sales managers that went to a sales management school well you know what's interesting is i sent the book you know for some previews so we actually have some universities that are teaching sales management training. Now, a lot of them have adopted sales training programs, but for example, Texas A&M, they actually teach a sales management uh, a few courses there. So, 
they are the ones that say, hey, wait a minute, we do teach this in our courses. So I had to actually change it to traditional sales management schools. So uh, congratulations to the universities that they are offering <laughs> some of the coursework. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder how... Well, it's like anything you take at college. It's like, okay, well, how applicable is this actually in the real world? And I sort of, yeah, I know there's an increasing number of degree programs and have a lot of respect for the people that are, are running those programs. Uh, it's always sort of interest. It's like, okay, what's the transition like for the students when they actually get into sales? You know, is it that they have learned something that's, that's really applicable? Because I look back my sales training, which is sponsored by a company when I first got employed years and years ago, but it was like, yeah, didn't use too much of that. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I do think, um, I think you're always going to have a little bit of a disconnect, which might sound odd coming from somebody that does this for a living, because you can teach the models, the framework methodology, which I think is important because if you don't have a framework, you're kind of going out there and making it up every day, right? So uh, frameworks will shortcut it. But there's nothing like being in front of a prospect or a customer that will actually, you know, test your ability to execute. And then frankly, it's going to give you new questions and objections you didn't even know about or think about. So some of it simply cannot be learned until you're in the field and having a conversation yeah. with the prospect or customer. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's interesting that you you raise something with this question about hiring, but in more general, you talk about it in the book, which is, is something I'm hugely passionate about, is that you know, as, an, as an industry, as a professional, as I sales, is we spend what I think is a disproportionate amount of time focused on the seller, right? We've got 50% of sellers don't make quota. The problem is the sellers, and everything comes back to the seller. But I really think everything that shortfalls and shortcomings that we have in sales start with management. And and you address that in the book. You talk about, you know, culture starts at the top and, and uh, emotionally intelligent sales teams have emotionally intelligent leaders. And I think that's, you know, individuals' performance is directly affected by who, who they're working for. Well, you know, it's the old adage, Andy, as we know, people watch what you do versus what you say, correct? So it's modeling. And, mm -hmm. it, and it starts when you're a child, uh, right? So your parents can be saying this, but if they're doing this, that's the behavior you're going to adopt. Right. And, and in fairness to the sales managers, I do, I've said this more than once, I believe they get set up to fail, right? Because we all have seen this movie right? Top producer gets promoted and they've spent four to five to eight years honing skills such as prospecting, business development, closing, negotiation, great selling skills. Then they land in sales management and they have to take this sharp right turn. And now they're supposed to know how to hire, transfer the knowledge that made them successful, run effective sales meetings, conduct one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions. And those are entirely different skills than selling skills. So uh, this is where I often say to companies, if someone hasn't received the training, education somewhere along the line, you may need to provide it, whether you want to or not. So that's what I've seen. I think they get set up to fail a lot. Provide the training, how to be a manager. Yes, how to be a manager. Because, you know, one of the real disconnects I will see is uh, just in training and coaching. And training is very different than coaching. And so I've even seen some sellers get promoted and they're pretty good teachers, right? 
But once you've taught the knowledge and the salesperson still isn't demonstrating the right behavior, skill, attitude, that is no longer a training issue. That is a coaching issue, which is a whole different set of skills. You got to diagnose it. How do you coach self-limiting beliefs? How do you coach fear? Uh, How do you coach delayed gratification? So again, there are so many new skills to be learned as a sales manager, and they've got to put in the quote 10,000 hours in those type of skills, just like they did in becoming an effective sales producer. Well, but we don't, again, we basically, we don't train as you talked about as, as, but also think that there's this disconnect that happens as, is, and this gets back to your idea about culture is, yeah, a lot of managers really don't think it's part of their responsibility really to coach. Right, it was is they get split by this, uh, you know. Hey, I need to be on top of the metrics because increasingly we've got more data. That's because of the transparency the tools provide, and I've got report on that, and you know, I've got all these other responsibilities and demands being placed on me by my leadership. That yeah, the coaching sort of ends up taking a backseat, and and I to me that of all the skills and all the things that you do as a manager, that's the thing that you should be spending. And I'm talking about coaching deals. I'm talking about coaching the people is you should be spending, you know, all the fractions of time, things you devote time to, that's the one you should be devoting the most time to. And I believe everyone knows that. So I think the reason coaching falls off of the calendar is a couple reasons. And you just mentioned one is we've got lots of data, right? So we've got now CRM tools and we can analyze, you know, pipelines, top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, full funnel, whatever you want to call it. But I do think with the onset of CRM tools, we confuse analysis of data with coaching. So I find a lot of sales managers think deal review is deal coaching. And it is not. Deal review is simply looking at metrics. But deal coaching, as you well know, is, okay, if this uh, seller consistently has opportunities that fall out at stage three, right? Or if this seller consistently is putting prospects in the pipeline that shouldn't be there, that's where the coaching comes in. And so I think there's a little bit of confusion that if I'm looking at data with the seller, I'm actually coaching them. And that is absolutely not true. And so I think that's where some of the confusion comes in. Yeah, and I, I draw a distinction between opportunity coaching, which is sort of what you were talking about, and and development coaching. I mean, for me, is is yeah, if somebody has deals that fall out at a certain stage, then I don't look at that as you know coaching an opportunity. I'm coaching that person about something that's happening that they're doing repeatedly. You know, it's a, a behavior that needs to change. Right. Um, and and yeah, to your point, yeah, I think it's this is one of the issues that I think we struggle with as a profession right now. Is yeah, I've got a lot of data that sort of tells me a bunch of stuff. Um, what do I do with it? Correct. And and I think going back to a point you just made between opportunity coaching and development coaching, in both of those, what I've seen sales managers at least try to do, they coach to what I've uh, called the sales IQ, right? Okay, let's see which consultative selling skills you're missing, which hard skills are you missing. But often, if you dig a little deeper, the reason either the wrong opportunities are being put in the pipeline or they're not progressing can be due to lack of soft skills, emotional intelligence skills, such as 
assertiveness, reality testing, impulse control. So when they do go into a coaching conversation, they tend to only coach to what might be half of the performance challenge problem. So I was just laughing because what you're saying is sales reps have an impulse control problem is they can't resist the impulse to throw bad prospects into their pipeline. Well, let's take a look at what impulse control is. <laughs> is they may uh, they may not have taken the time to really analyze who is my best prospect, right? And so, you know, yeah. some companies have this pretty well wired. They've got the lead scoring, etc. But in many organizations, you don't have that level of sophistication. So you have to really apply delayed gratification and really study your win loss. Hey, why am I winning? Why am I losing? And then apply that same scrutiny to the exploratory conversations or even who you're targeting there. So some of that could be a skill set, but others is delayed gratification, which is slowing down to put in the work to think and analyze so future work is better. So instant gratification, impulse control, I'm just going to go prospect. Well, that's great. You've done your activity, but you are confusing being busy with being productive. Yeah. and I mean, right. And all that sort of gets back to uh, what you talk about is the, you know, the need for self-awareness is, is the self-aware, self-aware seller, excuse me, should have some idea of that. Yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, um, uh, substituting activity for something meaningful. Uh, but I think it, I think it, you know, gets back to some of what you're talking about with the emotional intelligence is, is so much as I think in sales is fear driven. I think that's really true with managers as well, because I think most managers, most, many, some, I'm not sure which one of those three, really don't want to be managers. Well, that's a great point. And and, and so that would be called self-awareness and reality testing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I discussed in the book, I, I spent a chapter on it. And, and so I think, um, you know, sometimes we feel like we need to raise our hand. Uh, maybe we believe that's the right way for career pathing, you know, mm-hmm. all of these beliefs that have been put on us from who knows, blame it on your parents, we do everything else, right? And so, um, but when you take a look at it, just a couple of examples, you know, a really good, you know, a salesperson that loves hunting, right? That's the popular sales training term. Well, when you go into a sales leadership role, you're still hunting, but you're hunting for top talent. And you've really got to ask yourself, are you going to get as jazzed interviewing multiple candidates, uh, setting key performance metrics for meeting new new players on your team, even if there isn't an opening? And if you don't get real jazzed by that, that's a good part of your position you're not going to enjoy. Or do you get as excited helping a salesperson learn how to close the business or Deep down, do you really just still love closing it? And so there's nothing wrong with either answer. You just need to be aware of, I really enjoy being a producer more than I enjoy being a manager and a leader. Yeah, well, I, I like that analogy in the book. And you just raised it again about, uh, you know, a manager, part of the job is they have to build a pipeline of people. Absolutely. And, and I think the distinction, though, is in my mind at least, is that as a hiring manager, I'm actually more of a buyer than a seller to that degree. But but I think that that it's still a great picture for sales managers to have in mind is that you know they are responsible for the sale. What I call the sales product, right? What happens in front of a customer? That's ultimately the responsibility of the manager. What Absolutely. happens there? I mean, if you have people that aren't performing, that's not the person's fault. That's on you, right? The fact they're out there in front of that person, in front of the buyer, 
if they're not performing well, that's on you. And and it's and then you really have to start from that perspective. So that does start with yeah, is, is if you especially if you're not very good at at collectively as an organization at choosing the right people, yeah, that pipeline becomes essential. Yes, it does. And, you know, when we've, uh, I remember years ago, we had a, it was really quite a fun group. You know, we were doing a sales management workshop. And of course, there was a uh, problem, as we call it, the problem child salesperson. But, you know, this is, again, we've all had this story. Top producer brings in a lot of revenue. It is an absolute pain in the neck, right? Is not polite to other departments, uh, kind of shortcuts some of the uh, details that need to happen to make the order flow uh, through the system. And finally, after listening to about three case studies about this same particular rep, I, I remember looking at the manager saying, you do not have a person problem. You have a recruiting problem. And he was, he looked at me and I don't get what you mean, because I said, if you had 10 other qualified salespeople lined up to take this position, you would not be putting up with this inappropriate behavior. It's the same thing that happens in sales. If you have a full pipeline, you don't bother pursuing prospects that are transactional, rude, kind of not committed. So it's very, the concepts of great selling and great sales management, they can have a lot of similarities, but you need to know how to bridge that gap. And I remember he he just looked at me, he said, you're right. So think about it. Do you have a people problem or do you have a recruiting problem? And it's usually a recruiting problem. Yeah, yeah, and I, well, yeah, I think it's a mix of all those. I mean, well, so I mean, I, I guess the question is, 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 you know, as a manager, are you trying to hire great salespeople, or are you trying to hire people who can become great salespeople? My philosophy is probably a little skewed because I was really fortunate. I started with a very small company that now today is the largest in the world in their industry. They post revenues of over $1 billion. However, when I started, they would be, I guess the term today would be they were a startup. So I've always felt very grateful that they gave me an opportunity. However, when I look back, I would say my boss really knew how to hire people that actually were pretty high on what we call today resiliency, sales grit, had a good work ethic, and we were really coachable, and all of us were hungry to learn. Right. So I believe you can teach people if they've got some of those qualities in place first. Because, Andy, I've always been surprised when I uh, I'll go out and speak to a group of CEOs or VPs of sales, and they're in the room because they possess the attribute of learning. Uh, EQ world yes. would call it self-actualization, right? right? I have asked this question, I can't even tell you how many times. How many of you in your hiring interview guide for salespeople have included specific questions about a seller's aptitude and attitude towards learning? And you know what I get in the room? People look left, they look right, and then they start nodding their head no. So here you have a room full of learners but they've missed incorporating vetting heavily for coachable people and people that love to learn. Big disconnect. Well, why do you think? I, mean, I agree 100%. I, mean, I, I always sort of mystified by that because what you're saying is, look, if what we're really screening for is we're screening for curiosity. Yes. Yes, that's a great word. And, and so don't you want to screen for curiosity because this is one of the primary, if not the primary attribute not only a human being needs to have, but a, a human being in sales needs to have. 
Well, you you would think they would be vetting for it. Here's where I think must, might happen. And I certainly had this happen in my own life. And this is not to do the invisible pat on the back. But I think sometimes you will assume because you're hungry to learn, everyone else is the same. You assume that, gosh, I'll do whatever it takes. So you assume other people will. So I've done that bad thing called assumption, and we know how that word dissects out. And so I think there's some assumptions that are made there. And that's why anytime you have a system or a process, what's great about that is it does put some guardrails in to remove your personal biases, right? So that's the reason you have methodology, you have playbooks, you have metrics. It simply removes bias and it, it makes you more objective in whatever you're trying to accomplish. Right. I think that's one of the areas, though, where companies don't invest enough in process and metrics is in hiring. You know, I've had this conversation, and one of the reasons I want to talk about that part of your book, because I've been having a lot of conversations on the show about it, is still how much hiring is sort of seat of the pants and you know made up on the fly and and yet there's processes you can put in place that to your point is remove some of the biases from from recruitment and from hiring and enable you to track the results of your hiring to the performance of the people that you hired and and tracking meaning okay if they possess this set of competencies that's a pretty good predictor that we're going to have this outcome am i aligning with what you're saying well if we have a scorecard yes. which i think everybody should have a scorecard when they're hiring people you have you decide what's important right what's your part but the non-negotiables you called it and 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 i love the thing about you know there's something missing but mm-hmm. but you're going you're gonna to score these various attributes. Could be you do an off-the-shelf assessment. It could be you do a test of some sort. It could be you know to find out whether they're coachable, so they have to do a sample presentation. It could be their their interviews. Uh, you know, it's still hard to believe that companies these days bring somebody in, a candidate uh, that's one of the finalists, and they'll say, "Look, we're going to talk to five people today," and all five people ask different questions. I mean, the state of the art is that. You have all five people ask the exact same questions Absolutely. in the exact same order so you can compare the answers and and have a score that, that again, takes some of the subjectivity out of it. Right. Um, and so that's what I was talking about. Is, okay. Then you say, okay, we score total possible scores 50 on the scorecard. We're not going to hire anybody less than a 40. And then, you know, go back two years later and say, okay, well, how did the people that we hired at a 40 versus a 42 versus a 44 do? Right. Right. And you know what? It's, it's the same thing as prospecting, right? Lead scoring for a prospect. If it doesn't hit this score, you don't get to go into my pipeline. And we don't yeah. apply that same – see, the, the principles are, can be so similar, but for some reason we don't bring it over into the hiring process. And I would, I'd say the other place that's missing is if they do have any semblance of a very defined hiring playbook. So to your point – They've got a competency and they've developed three questions around that competency and three different people ask the question because I've seen where salespeople can be very good interviewers and they tell the same story over and over, right? But nobody knows it because they're not comparing the answers. But another area that I, I think people miss it, they may vet for the hard skills, subject matter expertise, years in the business, uh, you know, uh, contacts, uh, years of selling. What I what I call the what I call the blah 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 things, yes. <laughs> the blah. And you can vet those actually 
pretty easily without even talking to a candidate. I'm not saying you don't, but those things you can you can somewhat vet. But what they miss are some of the soft skills, right? The emotional intelligence skills and even interviewing for core values. I have found companies, mm-hmm. you know, they they've got the cards, you know, they're beautiful cards, they're laminated. And then again in a hiring workshop I will ask, okay, and how many of these questions are vetted for in your hiring process? And again I get the look left right? And then it turns into a nod of no. So it, that that's what we we see happening out there. And there's just not a systemization around it. Well, that's, that's the bottom line is you have to systematize hiring. And we've done that in sales. We've increasingly doing it in sales, doing the hiring as well. And it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you talk about values questions. I, I think that's so critical when you have your team of interviewers who are you know, have this list of questions they're all going to ask is you have to include in there questions about the person's values. I mean, this is, you talk about building a culture, but, you know, people have to be a culture fit. Yes, absolutely. And, and I remember interviewing years ago, uh, she was going to be more of my uh, assistant, but I knew teamwork was one of the core values here. So I asked her the question around teamwork. Hey, give me an example of the time when you helped a member of your team in one of your prior positions of which you received no recognition or credit. Because I was also kind of testing for selflessness. Mm-hmm, and you know what? Mm-hmm. And she came up with a great example. Um, I've also asked the question because I personally um, don't do well with blame, excuses, and victims. So I actually learned this question from uh, Don Finn. He's an HR consultant. And he said, tell me about a time when you've been treated unfairly. Now, if you've lived long enough on this planet, you've been treated unfairly, right? (laughs) Yes. And so everyone has a story. But what's interesting, if you listen to the answers, people that have what I term locus of control, if it is to be, it's up to me, they'll say, yeah, this was unfair. But you know what? I learned this. I learned this. And this was the good outcome. The ones that tend to be victims and blamers, They've got a story, and boy, they are still hanging on to that story. They chew on it every day. They ruminate every day. And right there, you've got a score. And yeah. that, that's, that would be my non-negotiable, the answer on that one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, mean, I think that that is, is uh, a big red flag. Is because, I, again, for me, is when I hear answers like that, it's, it's people coming at it sort of from a perspective of fear again. And, you know, the fear of being judged, the fear of, of being a judge not to be suitable. And so there has to be an excuse for that. And, and I think this is, I, to your point about, you know, emotional intelligence in general, not just the sales manager, management level is, is, yeah, I think a lot of failure of, of those who fail in sales is or underperformance is due to fear, right? Fear to extend themselves, fear to invest uh, fear of fear of failing, obviously, right? Right. And and yeah, we we have to be able to help people with that. Uh, and that's why when you talk about and the point I'd raised before is, yeah, your sellers only going as good as only going to get as good at that as their managers are good at it. Well, and as and as good as they are at coaching to failure, right? Because. You know, I find this whole conversation around failure a little bit humorous, right? Because, Andy, we've all heard that cute quote, you learn more from your failures Mm. than your successes, right? And everybody goes, yeah. And then I will pose this next question. So how many companies have you ever walked into 
and observed a big failure wall, right? Screwed up here, got outsold here, didn't do enough pre-call planning here, product (laughs) sucked. And so we talk a good game, but we don't walk a good game. Because if we truly learn more from our failures, why aren't we celebrating them? And so I think a lot of managers to, and I've heard you say this a couple times today, A, they may not know how to identify fear, or if they do, they don't know how to coach people beyond fear, right? And the same thing with failure. So how many sales managers in their group meetings are saying, okay, let's start. What was your biggest failure this uh, week? And what lesson did you learn? And how will that lesson serve you moving forward? I mean, you normalize failure because the fact is, if you're out there trying something new and today in this pandemic, boy, are sellers having to try things new, right? New industries, new decision makers, new ways of selling. You're going to take a few face plants. So normalize it, but give have them actually have to state the gift that they get from failing and take it from what I call rhetoric. Yeah, well, it's interesting you, you talk about that, though, because I, you know, when you, it, I've been thinking about it as you were, you were talking this last bit about do we learn more from failures than from successes because i i don't know i hope somebody asks me oftentimes on the show you know guests will ask questions to me about you know, what did i learn the big lessons i always learned came from my successes the ones that i remember today i'm sure i learned from my failures as well mm-hmm. but i mean you think about the context of, of sales we talk about you know momentum and flow well that comes from building on your previous successes mm-hmm. so it's it's i'm Thinking about that, I'm not not. I mean, I'm a, we've all heard the story, you know, the saying for all of our lives. And I, but I think it's. I wonder, yeah. You, know, you look at the military. The military, you know, always does this after action reports. You know, lessons learned. Um, yeah, do you learn as much from failures as you did from your successes? Because I think in, the thing with the thing with success is that, and I, this is the part that I always sort of struggle with that saying is that it's not. I look at successes I had. It was. And I, by and large, my sales career and sales management career are doing sort of large, complex products. But is is every situation was different, right? Mm-hmm. And so every every winning opportunity, we had numerous forks in the road where we had to make decisions, and and yeah, we learned through doing that. Hey, those were the right. We made those right decisions most of the time, and maybe we made some wrong decisions, but we were able to correct it. Uh, but on balance, I don't know. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I just it's it, it triggered me on that one. Is is uh, people maybe I think people don't spend enough time learning from their successes because that's you are you had all these points during that process where you could have made the wrong choice and failed, but you made the right choice and you. Should. So I think what you might be struggling with is I have a feeling <laughs> you are somebody. No, and I, I'm, I'm maybe you're not struggling, no, with it, but I was sensing you were. <laughs> I think what the question might be in your head is I don't think you ever really struggled making a comeback from a wrong decision. See, I think you've got a comeback factor pretty quickly because in the years that you sold enterprise sales, I've got to believe at some point you made a wrong decision, you screwed up. I just suspect, I just suspect, Andy, you went, okay, moving on. For many individuals, they may not have that um, psyche or as well developed as yours is. So a lot of times what sales managers can do to build that is just remind people, separate your do from your who. If you have have a failure, it's on uh, role performance. It doesn't have anything to do with you as a human being. So I suspect you had some of that built in already, which is great. And hopefully you're hiring for that. But I can tell you, 
there are X amount of salespeople that situationally, they might start taking things personally. They might start having some self-doubt, let fear creep in. And I I think for whatever reason, you were pretty well equipped, which is great. (laughs) My parents love me. Um, Makes a big difference. (laughs) I got news for you. Not everybody's coming from that type of home. If you came from a very critical home, uh, guess what? You don't screw up around here if you screw up wow, there is a price to be paid. So I, I think that's uh, that's what I call the invisible suitcase that can show up to offices. Even when you've done a good hiring process, there might be some invisible things showing up in the yeah. briefcase that the manager... Well, I grew, up, I grew up in a very competitive household. So dinner time was competitive. Four kids, I was the youngest of four, uh, oldest of four, you know, genius level smart, Um and yeah, we were <laughs> we were very competitive in in our conversations. So, uh, well, I yeah. grew up in a family of eight, and the only thing we were competing for was food. So <laughs> there, <laughs> there was no conversation. You had to eat quite rapidly. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I I had that challenge with my as I said, as the youngest, but my next oldest brother, who was second in line, and the kids is yeah, we would fight for who would go through the. The uh, the food line last in terms of filling our plates because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we both had big appetites. Yeah, if you were not the last one, you weren't coming back for a second. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that being in that competitive environment though is is we learn not to take things personally. Correct. And so think about it: if somebody comes from a household where opinions were not challenged, and it actually that was the norm. Can you imagine a person when they get with a C-suite buyer, which you are obviously facing in enterprise sales, a C-suite buyer is going to challenge you. I mean, and they're not doing it to be mean. They're not doing it because uh, of whatever, whoever you are, a salesperson. They're simply going to challenge you because guess what? If I'm going to make an investment, I really want to know you and your company are the ones to invest in. So you had training for how many years on, oh, this is normal. But boy, if somebody grew up in a household where it was don't rock the boat, uh, can't ask questions, can't be challenged, A, they may not do well in sales, so you shouldn't even hire them. Or it can be very situational to where when they get with that type of personality, they don't bring forth some of the skills such as assertiveness, uh, emotion management, and remaining calm in those conversations. And so that's Mm -hmm. where some of the coaching needs to happen. Yeah, I think one thing I took from that was, yeah, I don't (laughs) – I just – I questioned everything. There you and go. Curiosity. Part, yeah, partly because well, and partly because my older brother was you know very active in the anti-war movement back in the '60s and '70s, and we had these conversations about all this all the time, and and you know that was a whole challenge authority, question authority time frame, and I just came from that perspective. There you so, go. Yeah, I would. You still, were in a sales day, training I, class when you were ten. Yeah, I didn't know it, but I mean, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I tell people is is you know why do you take what your customers tell you at face value, for instance, right? Right. Why should you just, that's why you ask questions as you're digging, you're, you're uncovering. But you see that in salespeople all the time is, oh, well, the customer said this about the requirements. Like, yeah, but did you dig into that? Do you just accept that? Um, and that's, yeah, sort of an annoying characteristic I have as I just, as one boss told me once, he said, or asked me once, he said, don't you ever just say yes to anything? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Unless it's a Dairy Queen and a big chocolate sundae, then I'll say yes. Yeah, that, then I would have in a heartbeat. Exactly. So, all right. Well, Colleen, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, how can people find out more about the book and connect with you? 
And it is a good book. People should should definitely go out and buy this one. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so go to our website, which is salesleadershipdevelopment.com. You will see the book featured there. Uh, link in with me. I'd love to hear from you. And yes, go out and buy our book. It's in Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Emotional, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leadership. So thank you for having me as your guest today. I've enjoyed the conversation. Oh, pleasure to talk with you again. And we'll do it again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so ever grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Colleen Stanley for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. Thank you also so much for investing your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm-hmm.